Hello friends in Podland, it's Amber here and I am back finally with a new episode. I am so sorry it has taken so long. I've been really, really busy getting a show going for children, doing another show with a friend of mine um, and generally wrangling my son and, you know, school holidays and Grev and things like this. But it is no excuse, I know, so sorry about that. If I could, believe me, I would have been doing my favourite activity, which is researching things about Paris and podcasting about them. So with that in mind, this episode, it is about alchemy and Nicolas Flamel. So I think he's the most famous alchemist. I think most people have heard of him, probably just due to the Harry Potter books, which, full disclosure, I have not read, but I am saving them. I'm going to read them when my son's a bit older and I can share them with him. But I think a lot of people have heard of Nicolas Flamel, including myself, so it was fascinating to find out more about him, kind of go on his trail and investigate alchemy a little bit more. You know, it's a lot more complicated than I thought and probably still a lot more complicated than I thought. I'm sure I've not wrapped my head around it, um, but I've kind of tried to investigate it a little bit. So I hope you enjoy coming with me as we discover Nicolas Flamel and other alchemists in Paris. Hello and welcome back to Panem, a podcast that turns dusty history into gold. In today's episode, come with me as we visit Paris's oldest house, built by the famous and possibly immortal Nicolas Flamel. Who doesn't like a good story about the mystical world of alchemists? Certainly J.K. Rowling did, as did Victor Hugo, both of which make mention of Paris's most famous alchemist, Nicolas Flamel. But Nicolas Flamel was actually a real person, so who was he? And did he crack the secret that so many alchemists have been searching for? The Philosopher's Stone, the key to eternal life and wealth. And if so, is he still alive? And was he even an alchemist? And what is alchemy anyway? Come with me and let's see if we can find out a little bit more about it. Here at number 51 Rue de Montmorency in the 3rd arrondissement is Paris's oldest house, built in 1407 by perhaps Paris's oldest inhabitant. At over 600 years old, it beats the building at number 3 Rue Volta, also in the 3rd arrondissement, which for a long time was erroneously considered to be Paris's oldest house. It is a mere 300 years old, practically a new build in comparison. But while this is a fascinating place to visit because of its status as the oldest house, it is made all the more delicious because of who built it, as it was constructed by none other than Nicolas Flamel himself. The building has of course been updated and changed over the years, but there are still a number of original features to be seen. His ornate initials on the pillars and the motto Ora Elabora, Pray and Work. He constructed the house in 1407, following the death of his much-loved wife, Purnell, a name that you don't hear often these days. And it was built as a refuge for the poor who could stay there absolutely free. In return, they were asked to say a prayer. Above the door, the inscription reads, We men and women living under the roof of this house built in the year 1407 are 
honourably bound to recite one Paternoste and one Hail Mary every day, and ask God in his grace to forgive the sins of the poor departed. Amen. Although Nicola Flamel apparently never lived here, some say that it was here that he had his atelier and where all the magic happened. So who was he really, and what do we know about him? Nicola Flamel was a bookseller and scribe, born around 1330. He and his wife Pernell were very devout Catholics and donated a lot of their money to charitable causes. Pernell actually came from money and by all accounts Nicola was quite the shrewd businessman and made good money through property investments but also through his work. He was, after all, just a hop away from the Sorbonne and there was a great need for written documents. His shop originally stood alongside the church of Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie. Neither the church nor his shop remain. Instead, more or less where the shop would have been, a street is named after him, Rue Nicolas Flamel, and rather sweetly it crosses with that of his wife, Rue Pernel. All that is left of the once wealthy church where Nicolas and his wife donated money and were indeed buried is the Tour Saint-Jacques, which stands rather forlornly today in a small park. The neighbourhood was completely altered in Haussmann's reorganisation of the city. So let's take a moment to go back in time and imagine the Paris of Flamel. It is the late 14th century. This neighbourhood was right in the very heart of Paris. It would have been dominated by the Grand Châtelet, a fortress which no longer exists and was built in the 9th century to protect the Ile de la Cité from attack from the north. However, it was rendered rather less useful due to the creation of Philip August's walls in the 12th century. It was subsequently turned into law courts, prisons and a morgue, and by all accounts was rather a gruesome place. Poet Clément Marotte was unlucky enough to be imprisoned there in 1526, and he wrote a poem inspired by his stay entitled Hell. So I think you get the idea. The church, of which the tower only remains, was called Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie or Saint-Jacques of the Butchers. It was so named as it was financed in part by the wealthy and powerful guild of butchers, as this was the principal trade which took place in this area. Butchers had been installed here for a good couple of hundred years. The proximity to the Seine was ideal as they could dispose of waste directly into the river. With the butchers, there were other traders linked to this work which also sprang up. Don't forget that the animals would have been brought to the market and slaughtered on site. The names of the old Paris streets, which are now gone, remind us of the kind of trades we would have found here. Rue de la Vieille Tannerie, Rue de Foreur, Rue de la Tuerie, Rue de la Cocherie. The tannery, the fur makers, the slaughterers, the skinners. But you would have also found candle makers due to the tallow, as well as parchment makers and hence booksellers, which is why Nicholas's shop was here, leaning against the very church itself. So the church was flanked on one side by the imposing Grand Châtelet and on the other side by the huge meat market. Paris in the 14th century was a very different place. Let's bear in mind that Europe had just been ravaged by the plague and France was going through the Hundred Years' War, which ran from 1337 to 1553, which, yes, I know is more than 100 years, but I suppose the 116-year war just doesn't have the same ring. 
This neighbourhood was densely populated as it was right in the centre of Paris, but people lived in terrible poverty and in awful conditions. Nicolas Flamel, amongst all of this, was an educated, wealthy, pious and generous man. One can see how he might have stood out in this neighbourhood that was little more than a maze of narrow streets full of blood, death, animal slaughter, foul smells and rotting meat, not to forget the imposing prison. No wonder Hausmann wanted to breathe fresh life into this neighbourhood and sweep away some of that history. I'm not sure he did a great job, though, because Châtelet now seems to be rather a wasteland and, in my opinion, doesn't have much charm or personality. It was not, however, Hausmann that dismantled the church, rather the revolution that saw it become obsolete, and it was sold off. The tower was ultimately saved and was used as various things from a lead manufacturer to a meteorological station and there was even thought to make it a fireman lookout post where I suppose someone would keep an eye on the city looking out for smoke and send the firemen over if they saw a fire. It does have a really good view. Today I honestly don't know what use, if any, it has but sadly you're not able to visit so although it looms quite large over the Rue de Rivoli it is rather overlooked. But let's get back to Flamel. He not only had his shop just next to the church, but he had donated generously to the church, financing the construction of one door, as well as two arcades in the cemetery St. Innocence. The cemetery and these two arcades, about which much ink has been spilled, no longer exist. And after designing his own tombstone, he was ultimately buried in the church itself. After the revolution and the church's destruction, his gravestone was only saved by a sharp-eyed conservationist, Monsieur Justine Pontonnier, who spotted it being used by a vegetable seller to cut her spinach upon. How ignoble. Today it can still be seen in the Musée du Moyen-Âge. Although, did he need a tombstone or was his death just a ruse? Myths abound about sightings of Nicolas and Pernell years, nay centuries, after their supposed death, and there's even a story circulating of an empty coffin. Because, as we all know, alchemists have the key to eternal life. So, what do we know of Nicolas Flamel, the alchemist? The story goes that he apparently bought a mysterious book. As a bookseller and scribe, it seems logical that he might come across some unusual text. But this one was stranger than most, filled with cryptic signs and symbols. The language of alchemy. Flamel would apparently go on to spend his life studying the text, even travelling to Spain where he met a Jewish sage who helped translate some of the Hebrew text within the book. He ultimately goes on to discover the Philosopher's Stone, which turns base metals into gold. Also, that is what people said of him. Remember, 14th century Paris was poor, filthy and dangerous. Flamel already stood out during his lifetime. He was a wealthy and generous man. Today, if we meet someone who seems unexpectedly rich, we might joke, did he rob a bank or did he win the lottery? It seems in the 14th century the joke was, did he find the philosopher's stone? But it seems his business acumen was a more likely explanation of his wealth than any interest in alchemy. Indeed, there seems to be no evidence whatsoever that Flamel was an alchemist or even dabbled in alchemy at all. Sorry if you were hoping to find out that he was an alchemist, but I've got no evidence of that. But, I hear you say, what of the eternal life? 
the Philosopher's Stone is not just about gold, but also immortality. The myth of eternal life might have come about due to the publication of a book under his name which was published a couple of hundred years after his death, but written in the first person, as if he was writing it himself. It discussed the arcade, the one commissioned for the St. Instant Cemetery, but in this book it's no longer a merely religious image, but it is loaded with secret meanings. To give you a taste, the book explains that the whole arc can be seen as a furnace. A furnace is, of course, important for alchemists who need it to heat up their metal in their experiments. It goes on to say that the figure of Peter, who appears in the ark, is, of course, the stone. But here it has a double meaning, implying that Peter is the philosopher's stone, and he has the key, the key to making gold. Now, it's such a good story that people want to believe it, which is why we still know his name today and why he's used in popular fiction. But it seems more likely he was just a wise businessman who had already gained this reputation for finding the Philosopher's Stone. And someone then, much later, cashed in on this reputation by publishing a book under his name. And so the myth was born. Saint Innocence no longer exists, so we're not able to check out the secret messages may be hidden in the Ark, but I do feel that it's fitting that at least his house seems to be mortal, if indeed the man is not. But do not fear, the study of alchemy is a real thing, even if their ideas were fundamentally flawed. I personally thought it was sort of nonsense before looking into this podcast, but it's much more complex than I appreciated. So let's find out a little bit more about alchemy. Is it, like I thought, at best a desire to turn base metals into gold and possibly live forever? Or is it, at worst, the exploitation of the greed, stupidity or desperation of others for eternal wealth and eternal life? Or is there more to it? And why were so many great thinkers and philosophers like Newton, Roger Bacon or Albert the Great interested in alchemy? Let's have a quick look at this complex subject, which I do not hope to fully explore, but maybe just give you a bit of an idea. The language and world of alchemy is cryptic, coded, symbolic and secretive. I suppose it'd have to be or it'd all be at it. Alchemy really hits Europe in the 12th century, upon translation into Latin of the Emerald Tablet, a cryptic piece of writing thought to contain the very keys to alchemy and believed to have been written around 500 BC by Hermes Trismegistus. It appeared in a book called The Secrets of Secrets, supposedly by Aristotle. Although the Emerald Tablet is only 12 or 13 lines long, it includes a very famous line, as above and so below, a key phrase which became one of the major maxims of magical philosophy and alchemy. But what have people understood it to mean, and why is it such a powerful phrase? I'll do my best to give you a bit of an idea. Let's first turn to famous thinker and theologian and apparent alchemist Albert the Great. Albert was a 13th century philosopher and theologian and was also Thomas Aquinas's teacher. He and others thought, as above, so below, referred to the influence of the heavens, then believed to be made up of seven planets, which in turn influenced the seven metals in the earth and even the humours or characters of people. So, for example, Saturn, the planet farthest from the sun, influenced the most base of metals, lead, and the sun, the purest metal, gold. 
I find this notion of planets being linked to a specific metal and personality trait quite fascinating. So let's have a quick look at a few. I won't go through them all, but I'll try and put a link on my website so you can find out more. So let's start with lead. Lead is an easy metal to extract and has been in wide use for thousands of years. The ancient Egyptians used it for making weights and ornaments, and it was also widely used in cosmetics and makeup. In ancient Rome, it was used for making water pipes, many of which were underground, and consequently the word for plumbing is derived from the Latin word for this metal, plumbum, leading us to wonder if the fall of Rome was due to dodgy lead plumbing, because of course lead is poisonous. Now the Romans did realise this, but thought it would be okay in small doses. It is not, as it accumulates in the bones and teeth and has some pretty serious consequences. Lead poisoning is a condition in which one's temperament becomes gloomy, cynical and taciturn. And if someone was just a bit like this, we can call them Saturnine. Think Eeyore. In medieval times, the French referred to it as le poudre de la succession, or succession powder, as it could be used to poison unwanted relatives. Saturninism is the word for lead poisoning. This metal was also considered the father of all metals, and during the Middle Ages, alchemists repeatedly used it as a key ingredient, trying to generate gold. The other planets and metals are as follows. Jupiter, the planet of good luck and abundance, was responsible for tin. Mars was responsible for iron, which makes sense. Mars is the god of war and weapons are made of iron. Copper controls Venus. Copper was traditionally mined in Cyprus, which is thought to be the birthplace of the goddess herself. It's also very beautiful, just like Venus. Mercury is responsible for Mercury. Mercury is associated with quickness. It's also known as Quicksilver. One thinks of the god Mercury speeding around delivering messages in his winged boots. It was used to cure syphilis and until recently in fillings. Mercury, however, is also poisonous, causing tremors, mood changes and madness. Describing someone as mercurial means they are prone to mood swings. Think of the Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. The moon controlled silver and of course the sun gold. So here, above as below, is the idea of the planets directly influencing the earth, both what is contained within it and the people upon it. What is fascinating, however, is that in Aristotelian theory, all things are growing to perfection. In other words, lead will one day become gold. They are essentially the same material, just at different levels of development. What the alchemists are trying to do is speed up this natural process of turning lead or other metals into gold more quickly. But how do they do that? Well, with the Philosopher's Stone, of course. Now, what is the Philosopher's Stone? No one really knows, or do they? Essentially, the Philosopher's Stone is a sort of magical ingredient that could be added and act as a catalyst to move things from a primitive base state like lead to a pure, more noble state like gold. Now, when we consider 12th century Europe and the study of alchemy, we need to remember that it overlaps and is bound up in a number of different disciplines such as astrology, astronomy, mathematics, medicine and the study of the natural world. These disciplines were less clearly defined or understood as they are today. And importantly, to the medieval mind, the planets were considered to be a heavenly spiritual sphere. The above was not only literal, but metaphysical. The Green Tablet's famous phrase, as above, so below, also brings to mind the Christian creation myth. In Genesis, light is created, which correlates to the sun and the above. Below, the formless earth. Alchemists saw their work as linked keenly with religion and religious philosophy. 
By transforming lead or base substances to gold or light, they are bringing them closer to purity in the metaphysical sense of the word as well as the literal sense. Another facet of alchemy is the search for the elixir of life, a substance that could cleanse the body of impurities, bringing it to the most perfect health, not eternal life necessarily, but possibly prolonged life. This again brings to mind the Bible story of Adam and Eve. Before the fall, there was no illness, no disease or death. People lived forever in perfect health and close to God. So the elixir of life is a way of redressing Eve's original sin, a return to a state of prelapsarian purity, a pure human without disease or death. Now, this is all rather noble, philosophical and religious. Alchemists are not just trying to make money and live forever, but return us to a state of purity which is why it attracted so many great thinkers. And they must have found at least some interesting results as they tried to puzzle out the natural world, the heavens and the world around them. Alchemists are essentially scientists, mainly working by distilling things, experimenting, questioning. Nonetheless, if you're turning lead into gold or curing disease or possibly finding the key to eternal life, you are going to get a lot of charlatans, which is also why they have a rather tarnished reputation. And to be fair, even an honest alchemist driven by the purest motives is never going to turn lead into gold because at its heart their theory is simply wrong. Lead will never be gold. But that has not stopped people studying alchemy and myths abounding. Ironically, in their search for the Philosopher's Stone, they often used lead and mercury, both poisonous substances resulting, if anything, in the shortening of their lives rather than the prolongation. But now let's turn our attention to someone who is often referred to as an alchemist and who also lived in Paris, Albert Magnus or Albert the Great. Um, who would later become Saint Albert, so a pretty important person, especially if people called you the Great during your life. Albert lived in Paris in the mid-1200s. He came from Germany to teach in Paris, as did many of the great minds of the time. Paris was considered the intellectual centre of the world. He would be joined by his Italian student Thomas Aquinas, perhaps the most famous medieval theologian, Brunet Latinite, the master of Dante, and indeed Dante himself. Some pretty big thinkers, I think we can all agree. The only subject was, of course, theology and the language Latin, which is why we still call this neighbourhood the Latin Quarter. Albert lived on what was once called Rue Perdue, or Lost Street, but today it bears his name, Rue Maître Albert. In the 5th. Dante lived on the nearby Rue Bièvre and may have even started writing the Divine Comedy while living here. Today it's a very charming neighbourhood, but a couple of hundred years ago it was once considered the most putrid place in Paris. Quite an achievement for Paris. Albert was fascinated by the natural world and was always keen to investigate and experiment. He believed all knowledge was founded in sensations and individual observations. He also believed strongly that the astral fear had a powerful effect on the natural world. Sometimes he was right. The moon, as he said, does indeed affect the tides, but not due to vapour under the water expanding, as he went on to explain. Albert, however, for all the things you find out about him being an alchemist, teaching Thomas Aquinas alchemy, um, being interested in alchemy, discovering the Philosopher's Stone, seems was not an alchemist. Indeed, it seems he dismissed the works of alchemists, saying that alchemy could only produce something that looked like gold, but was not gold, following on from his own experiments with 
gold, which had been produced by an alchemist. He was interested in elements, minerals, stones and metals, even seemed to give minerals certain magical healing qualities, so I can understand why people thought he may have been an alchemist. Sadly, it seems no alchemist can be found in Paris. Not any renowned ones, and certainly no successful ones. And although it's easy to mock or find bewildering how medieval thinkers could get things so wrong, we should bear in mind that in a way we are still striving today to find the Philosopher's Stone or the Elixir of Life. We spend a fortune on clean eating or mindfulness or other health fads in an attempt to prolong our lives, and we're constantly looking for the next medical breakthrough to save us from disease and ultimately death. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast and hopefully you learned a little bit, as did I. For more information, do check out my website, which is panampodcast.com and you can follow me on all the social medias, uh, Facebook and Instagram, all that stuff. Just look for Panam Podcast. If you're interested to learn more, there are some really interesting podcasts that I listen to myself, including the History of Philosophy. I think it was episode 240 and 41, which talk about Albert the Great, as well as there's a podcast, The History of alchemy which was really very interesting as well there was a few by the bbc um covering the history of alchemy as well and obviously lots of websites and books some very weird documentaries mainly in french about alchemy and nicolas fermel i'm not sure i'd recommend them um i did read a whole book on la torre saint jacques a biography of a monument in paris a parisian monument which was Okay, so you could give it a look. And actually, I realised during the podcast, although I mentioned the Tour Saint-Jacques, I do not mention that, of course, it is on the route to the pilgrims who are going to Saint-Jacques de Compostelle in Spain. So, of course, that's the name um, of the of the church as well. And there's a very good book, which I always refer to, uh, called Around and About Paris by Teresa Valois. Um... I'm also trying to put on the website a little map and mark out all the places that I mention in the podcast so that if you're in Paris and you fancy following the route and finding out where all these places are, you can do that. So do check out the website and do get back to me with your thoughts and questions um, and feedback. I really love hearing from you. So just a quick thank you to the people who left me lovely five-star reviews. Ruth Graver in Australia. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you enjoy the podcast. Um, I hope Australia is not too cold for you. Paris is too, too hot for me. And if you do come to Paris, do, of course, look me up. I'd be happy to take you around. And likewise, from uh, someone, S. Dacrez from France. Thank you so much for your lovely review. Do get back to me, anyone else with questions or concerns. And do feel free to leave me a review on iTunes. It does apparently help other people find the podcast. That's it for now. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.